You know, women are often condemned to a life lived in the shadows. Men can elevate us with a word. And destroy us in a single moment. There are women at this time who argue for equality, who say that women are the same as men, but that's a literary debate. And it's not a debate that's actively coming into reality. What I love the most about her is she's resilient. Her only weak spot is this crazy genius called Leonardo da Vinci. Men are the problem. There are quite a lot of women writers. They have just always been regarded as slightly second rank to the men. So we paid a lot more attention to the men. Well, not in this. Episode four of Leonardo, the official podcast. I'm Angelica Bell, and I'll be your guide as we put women front and centre to take a close and at times uncomfortable look at what life was like for women in Renaissance Italy. You're not to see him anymore. I will not be made a fool of. Bernardo, you can't command me to. If you're no longer happy with our arrangement, just say the word. You're free to return to the streets of Florence. Episode four of Leonardo the Drama marks a difficult turning point for Catalina. And if you are following along with the action, then everything we discuss here refers to what we know so far up to the end of episode four. But we will also stray into some of the story from episode five of the drama as the issues affecting women overlap. So consider this your spoiler warning if you have yet to get there. Plus, we'll hear a lot more about the specific challenges for the woman from Cremona, from the woman who plays her, Matilda De Angelis. She's really a survivor in that period, especially, right? To put the role of women in context, historian Catherine Fletcher is back to talk us through some of the thorny issues of the 15th and 16th centuries, including, did society allow men and women to be friends? It's very, very risky, I think, for a woman to have any suspicion attached that this is tilting over into an improper sexual relationship. We will also hear the large role that COVID-19 ended up playing in Leonardo. Like many shows, filming shut down for months. But the drama then became one of the first major productions in Europe to get back up and running, at no small cost. It's not cheap at all, no. It was uh, really crazy, you know, because... uh... Uh, We ended up uh, spending more than one million euro only for COVID. We'll also get a reality check on Renaissance poisons and how weaponised they became. Plus the true story of the young Duke of Milan. Giacomo, wake up. We need to get to work. Now to get things underway though, let's check back in with our on-screen Leonardo, Aidan Turner, in conversation with Matilda De Angelis as Caterina, and the not-so-trivial topic of fashion. Matilda, tell us about your costumes. What were they like? Were they heavy? Did you have a corset? Were they really uncomfortable? A hundred. They were beautiful. Beautiful. They were. Incredible. Would you mind wearing something particularly fetching tonight? Fetching? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd like your help to get in Il Moro's good graces. All right. But you see, uh, about my costumes, I've been thinking. Oh. Every morning, I needed two ladies to dress me. Eventually, with the time, I understood how to take it off by myself. But in the morning, two ladies had to dress me up. So I realized how women 
have been treated for many, many years, uh, starting with the dressing in the morning. You can do it on your own. And for me, it has been a, a torture. I remember going on set every morning and thinking about how is it possible for me to do anything dressed like that. But let me just interject for one second, because would Katerina have had that help? I mean, she's sort of, she's a, a poor young woman. Would she have had a couple of people around to help her? How would she have got dressed? I don't know. I think you, I don't I think know. you cheated a little bit. Here, we faked it. It wasn't accurate in a way because it was impossible to dress, you know, on my own, impossible. So unquestionably, you'd need at least one other person there just to tie yeah, things, someone, things. Someone, but, wow. someone from the candle to the candle maker just dressed me up. Wow. It was really, really difficult. So I was thinking about that every morning. I was like, how can women do anything on their own? They couldn't even dress alone in the morning. And it was a torture, actually. I didn't know that. I feel really bad now. No, no. I don't know what I could have done, but... It's years and years and years of, of uh, tortures for women, starting with dresses and high heels. And, and, and every, every culture has its declination of that. But um, it makes you think. It makes you think about something. But the dresses were beautiful. It was the first time for me uh, dressed in a, in a period. So I was in a way I was really happy about it. I had super, super long hair and um, basically no makeup, which was beautiful for me because I hate makeup. Dan was a bit concerned with the aging we had from episode four on because I'm 25. So it's really hard to it's it's could be fake in a minute to, you know, pretend I'm a 40 years old woman. But dresses were incredible. I remember Aiden complaining a little bit about his pants or something. I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, I also had two ladies dress me in the morning, but they never needed to be there. They were just there. <laughs> so what are you doing here? <laughs> Hello. Hey, guys. Have some tea yeah. <laughs> and some coffee. Even. Um, yeah, there was, there was, the pants were tight. The pants took a minute. The pants took a minute to get used to. It was like suddenly... I was in like a David Bowie biopic or something. It's just like they were tight pants. I never realized how good we had it before COVID until that happened. We had to come back and shoot in the summer. It wasn't just the protocols or the masks or the thing or the distance and all that, or, or how slow it, you know, I suppose it was a bit slower, but it was the heat that people had said, you know, thank God. And that's the other thing everyone on set had said, you know, when we started shooting, thank God, you know, we're not shooting in the summer. We're going to be wrapped by then. Like everyone was saying it leaning into that and then suddenly we're there in the midst of the summer yeah that was difficult that was really hard um because of course we were dressing for different seasons weren't we um yeah the costumes were beautiful alessandro did such an amazing job i was quite surprised too that's another thing but not only the tight pants but he was he was alessandro had was fitting me for jackets you know and i just and with the tight pants and boots and i looked like i was you know modeling for all saints <laughs> It looks so contemporary. And he was like, they did it first. I was like, oh my God. Like, I just looked. Like, these jackets, you could walk down, you know, somewhere in London, you know, Carnaby Street or whatever, and you wouldn't look out of place. True. Bizarre. I just didn't, I wasn't quite aware of how the style has been introduced at later dates, you know? I mean, it, it really does look quite contemporary. Uh, and that's what I kept saying to Alessandro. Have we taken a contemporary approach? He's like, no, no, no. These are like, you know, these are older designs from such and such. And he really knew his history of it. But uh, yeah, the... Um, 
Yeah, the pants were definitely a bit a bit too tight. That's something I would go back and change. But... <laughs> <laughs> you look great. <laughs> What we wear absolutely does impact how we act. And as Matilda was saying especially, for women at the time of da Vinci, the clothes compounded the freedoms that women were allowed. Her character of Caterina is crucial to the drama, and while her story has been fictionalised by the writers of Leonardo, remember that Caterina da Cremona was based on a real person, the woman that da Vinci drew in his lost masterpiece, Leda and the Swan. We'll get into the details of that lost painting in a later episode, but right now, Matilda De Angelis breaks down the Catalina that she created and why it's so vital that she is placed front and centre in the story. I've still got headscarf on. This is lockdown look. <laughs> I love it. I love it. How are you? Really good. How are you? We caught up while Matilda was in a break from filming at home in Rome, aptly framed in the remote recording with a sketch behind her taken from set of Catalina. Matilda, we've already heard about the inspiration for Catalina from earlier episodes. But from your perspective, having played her, who is this woman? Oh, who is this woman? For Leonardo, she is love. She's a mystery like the sky, right? And for me, she's a, she's a young woman from the working class, right? So she's really a survivor in that period, especially, right? She has a decent job, an honest job. She breaks her back every day and she struggles to make a better life for herself, but always sticking with her morals and ideals. And she's really truthful to herself, like every day. Now put the belt around her waist. Bend your arm, bend your arm. Keep your hands to yourself, thank you. And I like to say she's both the daughter of her time and really modern at the same time in the way she talks, the way she behaves, the way she sees things. And her relationship with Leonardo as well is really, really modern. So I guess for me, what I love the most about her is she's resilient. She's able to be truthful to herself, even in the most stressful of time and the most difficult of situation. We can't stay here. We have to go, please. We should have left after they killed the actor. It's one thing to execute a man who tries to murder you, but to poison a helpless child. Her only weak spot is this crazy genius called Leonardo da Vinci. Say something. I can't go. What? I can't leave. I have the commission. I liked about her that she's so modern. I think it's really interesting to tell a character, a woman character like that, in the Renaissance period. He's a we don't. Right? We know. We don't know no. that he's responsible. How can you be a part of this anyway? And were there any other references that you used to help you become this character? No one, just me. No, really, really. Uh, I wanted her to be like 100% a creature of my soul and my heart and my imagination. Are you a child? Mind your own business. What was really difficult for me from 
episode three and four on was the motherhood of Katrina. Because I'm really, really young, I'm 25, so motherhood right now is something really far away from my imagination. So, but uh, with the help of, of Dan, I found this telling her being a mother in, in that crazy time um, really fascinating and interesting. And uh, it was something really new for me as well. So every part of being a woman are in Katrina strong, independent, determined, but also a mother, a friend, uh, a companion, a lover, a daughter, everything. Dan Percival, the director you mentioned there, I know was instrumental in drawing out some of these themes, but there's a lot going on in this character, isn't there? I struggled a bit to really understand that fear of losing someone. I have a dog, which is like a a son to me, but of course, in a very, very different way. But I struggle to understand that fear of losing someone, which is your flesh and, and bones, especially for a character like her, that is presented like a woman who cannot have children. And in the 16th century was something like, you are useless. Even nowadays, when you ask a, a woman, uh, do you have children? And she says, no, it's always like, there's a, a guilt in it, like, um, no, like, but there's nothing wrong in it, right? Right, it's so rudely discussed at times, still, it's insulting to women. You're allowed not to have children. This is not your task. This is not your goal in this world to have children. You're a woman. You're not incomplete. You're not useless. But in the 16th century, it was really, really something else. Like, if you're not a mother... Who are you? If you don't procreate, what are you up to? Freedom for women in society can still come at a price. But in the Renaissance, and as Catalina shows, it was so limited by choice and how she could earn money. I beg you, sir, I need a job. There isn't one. We got all the women we need. Well, surely you could use one more. Nah, you're wasting my time. Please, I'll work it off wages. We see her in poverty in the first episode and the second episodes, and she's like that. And then when you see her at court, she's always the same. Of course, she needs to change a little bit to, you know, fit into that world when you have to bow, you have to show respect and to be like clean and nice and, and polite. Yes, your grace. But... The heart, the soul is, is the same. She'd rather be a slave, but free. Like, no gold, no money, no nothing. I'd rather be on the street uh, struggling and fighting for my life, but honest with myself and free from this tyranny. And it tells a lot of how women were treated at court. That conversation Katerina has with Schwarza it's not her choice to sleep with him and become his mistress. He holds all the power in that situation, but she sees it as a better option. Love is sacrifice. <laughs> oh, you don't agree. It sounds like the sort of thing a man might tell his wife or his mistress. Never himself. In a way, being a mistress during that time was a, was a safe job. 
right? Because the other option is working and breaking your back on the laundry or the candle maker or whatever, and not being paid. And if you think about it, at court, you have everything you need. And and being a mistress is, is about doing a rather more comfortable job. Why the black one? He will prefer it. But... What's beautiful about her is, in the end, she decides to be free, and Leonardo doesn't. So, she says, Ambition has destroyed the man that I loved. Which is a very central theme in in the show as well. If I walk out now, I'll be no one. Who am I if I'm not an artist? Art is the most important thing for Leonardo, but the amazing thing between the two of them that eventually he understands that love is what drives him to paint and to work and his creation needs to have an engine, like, and love is the engine, love is the power. And when he doesn't have Katerina, he has nothing. Bringing glory to the family that can murder a child. I can't begin again from nothing, and surely you understand. It's taken me so long to get this far. I can't believe I'm here. If I walk out now, I'll be nothing. I mean, at this point, as a viewer, we're questioning whether we like Leonardo or not. How do you see him? He's not a villain. He's not a bad guy. He's just obsessed with his art. And sometimes he gets confused, right? He gets... He doesn't see things clearly, and she's a reminder. She's the balance. She's the clock. She's she's the time and space. She's she's home. So, and that's really um, about women. I'm I I I really believe that. Really. Please listen. Don't follow me. It's over. It's so tempting to skip ahead in the drama and discuss what happens next. But we mustn't, not yet. Let's stay focused on women. And what life would have been like if you were a woman living at that time of da Vinci? Welcome back, historian, author and Renaissance expert, Catherine Fletcher. In episode four, there's a heartbreaking scene where the Duke of Milan's wife dies in childbirth. How dangerous was it for a woman to give birth at that time? And would women raise their own children? I mean, obviously, like death in childbirth is a real prospect. And it's much more common than it was today. But there are significant risks. There are all sorts of significant health risks. There are plagues that go around. There is a much higher risk of dying young. There's obviously the impact of warfare that comes in. So there's a very precarious existence just on a general level than we would be used to today. But, you know, in ordinary circumstances, children would be brought up by their own mothers. And the exception to that actually would most likely be the children of the very rich who would be given to a wet nurse to breastfeed, who would then be probably be brought up by people um, maids and tutors and so forth at something of a distance from their own parents. I mean, there's a little bit of kind of issue there, I suppose. But no, I mean, mothers are meant to be responsible for the education of young children, um, for teaching them the basics of religion and morality. So there is a definite role for mothers in bringing up children at this time. And it's only when they get a little bit older that they sort of 
would tend to have more of a relationship with their fathers, I mean, certainly amongst the wealthier families, and start to, you know, work in a family business and so forth. Which is not to say that parents aren't affectionate at all, but that it's, you know, just as now, often people do assume that it's the mother who should be looking after the younger children, and that isn't something that's necessarily changed in 500 years. You'll dine with His Excellency tonight. Alone. Sorry, without you there. A man of power has certain demands that he makes on the world. I'm offering you the chance to keep alive to which you've become accustomed. I know my husband. My life is easier when he's most contented. Catherine, I asked Matilda about this earlier, but the drama highlights the lack of choice a woman could have at court, especially when it comes down to consent. If someone was more powerful and they decided they wanted to sleep with you, could you say no? If you're a woman at court and the ruler of the city decides that he's going to sleep with you, um, saying no is a very high stakes thing to do and probably has difficult consequences for you, potentially has difficult consequences for your family, because these are essentially their kind of absolute estates. I mean, at the end of the day, if you're the Duke of Milan or your regent the Duke of Milan, what you say goes. And if you have the protection of your male relatives, you might be able to push back a bit against that. But it's often very conditional, you know, how much influence and how women can have at court on whether they can get themselves into the favour of powerful men, whether that's powerful men who are potential lovers or it's powerful men from their own family. A lot of the time, it's that sort of manoeuvring around and trying to play people off against each other that enable you to exercise influence. So it's not they can't do anything at all, but their agency is quite limited. It's your choice, of course. Of course. But there really is no choice at all. Is there? And what about equality as something that's spoken about or fought for? Well, I mean, women are generally, not necessarily by themselves, but in society as a whole, um, I think most people regarded women as inferior to men. They don't get rights to vote in the republics. So city-states like Florence, where there's um, an elected government, you know, women don't participate in any of that. I mean, there are women at this time who argue for equality, who say that women are the same as men. There are men who argue on that side um, as well. But that's, you know, a literary debate. And it's not a debate that's actively coming into reality um, very much. The women who have most power, I suppose, are the women actually who in some way get to stand in for men. So often widows, because their husband has died, they're in charge of the household. They have a certain amount of autonomy. There are some um, women who live independently as writers. There are some women who combine the career of writers and courtesans. So a kind of upmarket type of sex worker. That's quite a precarious career, though. And it's a career with a limited sort of lifespan. So again, although it's a job that gives women some autonomy for a period of time, it's really quite a challenge to live entirely independently. So a lot of what women can and can't do comes down to what their male relatives are going to let them get away with. Thank you for my new wardrobe. You're very generous, Your Grace. Well, I like owning beautiful things. So at this time then, with all these power dynamics and player relationships... Could men and women simply be friends like we see Catalina and Leonardo or was that frowned upon? Again, whether they can be friends depends on 
all sorts of factors. Like, so for example, um, a married woman might have friends, if her male friends, if her husband is okay with it, if they stick to certain sort of rules, particularly at court, or where you might have, say, a woman who's a marchioness or a duchess with younger male admirers in a kind of literary salon almost. And they can, you know, pretend that they're in love with this woman, but it's that the kind of rhetoric of chivalric love she's meant to be there on a pedestal nothing is actually meant to be happening and of course around the edges of that people can get up to all sorts of things but there are rules and conventions for what is meant to happen Bernardo expects me to behave a certain way you walked away from me we have responsibilities we're not the same people anymore there are some quite prominent cases. So um, Michelangelo and Vittoria Colonna, she's a writer. Um, he's obviously both an artist and a writer and a poet. Um, they exchange letters. They obviously have a friendship. Um, so does Lucrezia Borgia has a friendship with a guy called Pietro Bembo, who later goes on to become a cardinal. And they have these friendships by correspondence, which is how we know about them. So there's lots of you know circumstances in which, yeah, people do have friendships, but it's very, very risky, I think, for a woman to have any suspicion attached that this is tilting over into an improper sexual relationship, particularly when she's of childbearing age and that might risk the children not being her husband's. Catherine, away from Leonardo for just one moment, I'm curious as a historian, can you ever just watch and enjoy a drama set in a time period you know so much about or is it just frustrating judging the historical accuracy? Some things do frustrate me where I think that getting them right wouldn't actually damage the narrative. But I completely understand if you're watching a drama for entertainment, particularly if it's a bit of a thriller, you want a story that fits, is easy to follow, has all the kind of dramatic sense of the characters in there. And, you know, swapping between all the complicated intra-family dynamics of the Dukes of Milan might be an interesting series on its own, but when your main series is about Leonardo, you can't necessarily fit all of that in, so you have to telescope a bit. So I don't mind when they make compromises. Some The, the compromises that frustrate me are ones when you actually sit and think sometimes they could have done that properly in line with the history and it would have made even better drama. So I only really mind people doing it when I'm thinking you would have a better story if you'd gone with what really happened. Naming no names, of course. <laughs> but moving on, let's talk poisons. Mm. Because there's a plot point in episode four of the drama where toxic paint pigments are laced into the fur of a dog, proving deadly to all who stroke that dog. Well, uh, gosh, I have never personally come across a specific murder with art materials, but I can entirely see how it's possible. And people in this period are really, really paranoid about poisoning. Anybody gets a bit ill after dinner, um, probably a case of food poisoning, and they're like, what if my enemies have snuck in and bribed the cook? And it, like they really get wound up about it. <laughs> and although they do have they do have autopsies and they can sometimes get an indication of whether somebody's been poisoned or not, they obviously don't have a full on you know CSI and forensics and so on. So they can't ever really quite tell whether it happened or it didn't. And it's by far the easiest way to get rid of an enemy you know, sneak in, get one of your guys into a low-ranking job in the kitchen and then you just pop something into the soup and pff, the whole dinner party is <laughs> not feeling well. So it's, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's something that they really, really worry about. I have... You would... Uncle? <coughs> Uncle? Darling! 
No, 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 don't, don't touch him. Don't, don't, don't touch him. Stand back, Tony. I need a pestle, charcoal, turmeric, salt, and milk from the kitchen, please. Take the duke. Good guards, uh, take hold of the dog. Do not touch him with your bare hands. So on screen, Leonardo makes up an antidote. Was it accurate for this time to save someone from poisoning? Yes, so poisons do have antidotes. And there's actually, there's a case in the 1530s where one of the Medici family gets poisoned and they get the guy who's accused of it really, really quickly. And they hold him for questioning and they're constantly asking him exactly what type of poison it was so they can try and find the antidote. So yeah, they know about antidotes. They know that's um, a possibility. The doctors, um, if they know exactly what type of poison they've got, you know, that's a feasible thing that might have happened, or at least they would try and make it happen at the time if they got the information about the poison quickly enough. Oh, it's all so fascinating, isn't it? Cloak and dagger stuff. <laughs> if you hadn't been here with the right antidote at precisely the right moment. <laughs> How does an artist come to know the antidote for poison? Um, many pigments are to see as poisons. I've made a study of their toxic qualities and concocted antidotes to counter them, but that coppery pigment that was used last night, that composition of death, that's hard to come by in Milan. You're listening to Leonardo, the official podcast, episode four. I'm Angelica Bell. Aidan Turner and the cast of Leonardo were in Rome, mid-filming in March 2020, when the coronavirus pandemic hit and quickly changed the world. This drama would go on to set the tone for how to restart production in a COVID-safe way. Director Dan Percival had quite a unique perspective on what was unfolding. Dan, you must be relieved that the series is finally out there having worked on it for so long. Yes. <laughs> well, it was a lot longer than any of us thought it was going to be because of COVID. And, and of course, Italy was the first country to be hit with this and no one quite knew what to expect. Um, it was alarming and difficult, but we were also the first country back up and running. No, exactly. And I think to get it done in such a precarious time is no mean feat. So first of all, take us through the timeline. So when did you start and then you have to stop? Because I know that you had to resume filming in June and then get back on track. So what happened? Yeah, well, we'd started the shoot before Christmas in 2019. And we'd done two weeks before Christmas. And then we were coming back in January to start shooting again, which of course we did. But into February, we realised we were going to lose some major locations. And the first solution was, OK, can we find locations in and around Rome that would double for the locations we've lost? What impacts are going to have on the schedule? What impacts are going to have on the shoot? But I kind of knew... I'm an amateur epidemiologist. I actually was trained in epidemiology when I was doing a documentary back in the early noughties in around 2001 for a film I made called Smallpox, which was about a fake global pandemic. And so I was looking at the figures very closely and I kind of knew already this was out of control and it would all be over very soon and we would be locking down. It was just inevitable. But I don't think, you know, the, the world was quite ready to face that reality. So part of me is going, guys, this is, I know it's in Mantua today, but it'll be in Rome in two weeks' time. You know, we need to be thinking differently. And sure enough, within two weeks, by March 10th, it was in Rome, and we did have to shut down. And how much had you filmed at this stage then? We'd shot about six weeks in total, which was a large percentage of the shoot. You know, it was at least two entire episodes worth of material shot. 
the irony is there we were in Rome, in Italy, with some of the world's greatest period locations on the planet, and we couldn't go to any of them. So we had to recreate it, and all the Italian craftsmen and, and the production designer was able to take that money for, that we would have spent on location, redesign the back lot, expand it, double the size of it, and literally build the sets for the locations we needed. So from the period of March when you had to shut down the production to June when you resumed filming, you had that time to sort of consolidate, regroup and and make those, you know, considerations of what you could do to get back on your feet. Yes. Lockdown was a very busy time. I was also editing what the material we did have. We, we'd, shot, we'd actually shot nearly half the series because I cut half of all of my episodes. So was that good for you then, in one sense, Dan? Because it meant you could, you could cut it and sort of get a vision and think, ah, this is sort of what I need further down the line as well. Yes, it really helped me think about what we were doing. It helped us all, actually. <laughs> the producers, the writers, myself, we all, we all looked at the material and thought about what was working, what wasn't working. It was a real luxury, in a way. I think all productions should have a break midway <laughs> just, just to go and do that because... It made us much, much more efficient uh, and when we came back. So it's almost like there was a silver lining, but I guess you were one of the first productions to sort of pave the way for other productions to follow suit in this sort of environment and keep, keep the industry moving, which, you know, has come under a lot of strain with the pandemic. Yes. Hats off to you. Thank you. I mean, I can't take credit for it. I, I was just a cork on the ocean. But really, the producers at Rye did a phenomenal job, Corrado and Daniele and Luca, in getting the show back on its feet and getting us filming again. Just so you know, dramas on this scale do not come cheap. Leonardo cost 31 million euros to make. And the Italian production team from Lux Videi knew just what was at stake when they had to, of course, halt filming and make sure everyone was safe. My name is Corrado Trionfera. I am uh, working at Lux uh, as a co-executive producer, uh, working with Daniele Passani. So we uh, manage and supervise several productions uh, at the same time. The first lockdown was on March the 9th, so I remember that date as a, as a horrible day. It was a Monday after a weekend where, uh, in Italy, uh, we, we were hearing news about, you know, lots of people infected and many, many people who died. And northern Italy was, uh, was all becoming a, a red zone, and this red zone was enlarging day after day, so it was quite uh, painful. But uh, at the same time, on set, we decided to stop the shooting on March the 9th because it was really dangerous and people didn't feel so comfortable because, you know, actors and uh, uh, mostly actors, but they, they had to work without wearing masks. And uh, in that days, we weren't so ready to approach this kind of pandemic. And uh, I, I still remember that nighttime before that day and the night between Sunday and Monday, uh, I had to go myself to, to a lab uh, who prepared us two boxes of hand gel for all the crew. Uh, so everyone was scared on, on that day. And uh, we never stopped working, I, I mean in production, because we, we started since the very beginning to work at the procedures to, to restart working, to restart filming. So 
uh, we have been working a lot with uh, with medical advisors, with uh, all the professionals that could lead us through a, a new protocol to fight COVID and to, to make our sets the, the safest place where you could live at that time. So we had to do lots of uh, work at our studios. We, we adapted the, the offices, you know, with, the, with the plexi shields or maybe painting lines on the, on the floor just to, to keep people distanced and uh, creating one-way paths for the crew. And uh, we had to buy many, let's say, technical devices to, to keep the, the environment uh, sanitized. We put a, a nice device that's called Sanigate at the entrance of the studios, where at the same time you could have your uh, temperature taken. Um, there was a device that controlled if you were properly wearing your mask. And at the same time, you were sprayed with a hydro-alcoholic uh, solution to, to clean your clothes and your shoes. And after that, we, we bought ozone machines to disinfect and to sanitize offices and uh, warehouses. And uh, at the same time, we, we found out some small portable ozone machines that we used for the production cars. So there was an area at the studios where all the drivers stopped when they uh, delivered the act or the, the person, the crew member that they were transporting, and their car was... Uh, in seven minutes was completely uh, ozoned and uh, sanitized, ready for, for another trip. So this, uh, all these things together uh, led us through a very safe period. <laughs> Sounds very complicated. The most important thing we did uh, was to test actors uh, continuously. So we are testing our crews and our cast, let's say the A group, the one closer to the camera, three times a week. This means every two days and it's quite stressing for everyone but it's the only way to keep the environment safe and after a while we also had the, the fast swap test so we could test and have the result in five minutes so uh, sometimes it happened that if actors had to shoot scenes very close or maybe there was a kiss or a hug they asked us can we have a, a an additional or an extra swap test this morning or maybe half an hour before shooting the scene so they could really feel more comfortable. Remember, at this time in the summer of 2020, there were still so many unknowns about coronavirus and a lot of fear about getting back to work, however safely, in smaller groups of people. So it was crucial to put the cast and crew at ease. When they came back to work, they saw what kind of uh, measures we adopted on our sets and they, uh, I think they felt comfortable since the very beginning. Uh, also, Dan, who was coming back from the UK, he was really surprised to see how everything was ready to, to welcome back the crew and the cast and uh, offer them a, a really a, a safe environment. The safety measures that were put in place on the set of Leonardo then became a blueprint for other productions around the world. Sony was uh, co-producing the show with Lux, so naturally they were really very impressed of uh, uh, what kind of work we we achieved uh, that they, they asked us to prepare uh, a document and uh, videos and tutorials and uh, protocols to share with all, the, with all the colleagues in the US and in, in other countries where Sony operates. And um, I think uh, in such a difficult moment worldwide, I mean, it's really important to, to, to share and to, let's say, teach others how you came out from a big crisis as, uh, as COVID created. Proper safety measures do not come cheap, though. 
it's not cheap at all no it was uh, it was really uh, really crazy you know because uh, uh, we ended up uh, spending uh, only on Leonardo was uh, more than 1 million euro only for covid the but the producers never put us any limit you know uh, safety was uh, was the first issue so that led us to to the result you know because otherwise we could have been probably would have been costing more if we had to stop another time so what happens next will productions be implementing these types of covid safety measures for years to come i hope not <laughs> i hope uh, well now now we have uh, on our budget there's uh, there's an account there's <laughs> there's a huge account on the on the budgets that is <laughs> covid uh, covid costs and uh, we are facing it also on the on the on our latest productions and uh, but i really hope that uh, after next summer we can start cancelling all this it was a huge success then i always knew it would be corrado trionfera from lux fidei now to end with another fact check if you haven't watched all of episode 4 of leonardo yet this does give away the dramatic ending of that episode you have been warned right then we know that Ludovico Sforza, played by James Darcy, has a mean streak, to put it mildly. He's power-hungry and keen to grasp hold of that power to remain the Duke of Milan, even if it means killing others who stand in his way. But did Ludovico really murder his nephew as a child? Catherine Fletcher has the knowledge. Yonanda, say it. Say it. I think he's been poisoned. We have to do something. In the series, there's a you know the storyline where he has the prospective Duke of Milan murdered as a child. Can you shed some historical light on this for us, please, Catherine? Yes. So Ludovico Sforza, he's the younger son of a Duke of Milan, and he wasn't expected to inherit. But then his elder brother was assassinated. So Ludovico took over as regent for his nephew when his nephew was a child. I'm a caretaker. I've no real claim for the title. Now, in fact, what happens is that the nephew is kind of eased out. Ludovico essentially just rules the state of Milan, but the nephew grows up, gets married, and when he's 25, he comes back in with an army and tries to um, take back over from Ludovico. At that point, he then dies in mysterious circumstances. So his age has actually kind of been taken down and those different storylines have been elided a little bit so as to have the, the drama of him murdering the child. But in fact, you know, the guy's 25 with three kids when he dies. So it's not quite, it <laughs> works out slightly differently in real life. But um, yeah, certainly Ludovico Sforza is not somebody who's particularly bothered about a few murders along the way to power. I would think that's a fair assumption. If anything were to happen to him, it would never be with my blessing. If your lordship. Next time, prepare for things to get emotional as we hear the role that music plays in the drama and we feel the power of Leonardo da Vinci's infamous masterpiece, The Last Supper. This podcast was created by Sony Pictures Television and Sony Music's Fourth Floor Creative in association with Lux Fide. Produced by Natalie Jameson and James Deacon. 
edited by Chris Attaway, sound mix by Mark Pittam and production support from Barney Lee.